Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Today, we're going to look at the very first, in fact, the only person in the entire Bible called an evangelist. And again, he wasn't a pastor or an apostle. He was a layman, a deacon. And we find his remarkable story in Acts chapter 8. And today, we're going to look at three characteristics of an effective evangelist. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. You know, some Christians assume evangelism is a job that's strictly reserved for pastors. But you might be surprised to learn that the very first and only person to be called an evangelist in the Bible was just a normal guy. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffers shares how God used this ordinary Christian in an extraordinary way. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffers? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Most of us don't see ourselves as an evangelist, but in the purest sense, those who follow Jesus Christ are called to be ambassadors for Him. It's a position of honor. It's a privilege to represent Jesus. Well, here's the rub. If your life is devoted to sharing Jesus as the only way to heaven, you're going to experience pushback from your friends and sometimes even persecution. And for that reason, I'm guiding you through several stories about the first century Christians. Their lives unfold for us in the book of Acts. In this study called Unstoppable Power, we're learning that no person and no circumstance can prevail against the power of God. I've written a new book on this topic as well. It's also called Unstoppable Power, and it's based on Acts chapters 1 through 12. I'm prepared to send you a copy of my book when you give a generous gift to the matching challenge that's active right now through July 4th. My book is the perfect choice for your small group Bible study at church. It'll stimulate great conversation among your Christian friends. Plus, when you give a generous gift today, every dollar you give will have twice the impact because of the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. We're inspired by the words of Jesus who said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Your gift today will provide the fuel needed to help others stand strong in Christ and to unleash God's unstoppable power. David and I will share more details later in today's program. But right now, let's consider the topic at hand. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8 for a message titled, Portrait of an Effective Evangelist. Thomas Huxley was an agnostic. He was also known as Charles Darwin's bulldog. In fact, many people say, had it not been for Huxley's defense and support of Charles Darwin, Darwin's theory of Evolution would have been nothing but a minor theory in the scientific community. One day, this agnostic, Thomas Huxley, was talking with a man who professed to be a Christian, and he said to him, tell me, how did you come to be a Christian, and what has Christianity really meant to you? The man answered, I'm not about to get into an argument with you. You would tear me to shreds with your intellectual ability. Huxley said, no, I'm not trying to argue. I really want to know how you became a Christian and how it changed your life. And so the man related his simple testimony of how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And when he finished, 
Thomas Huxley's eyes were filled with tears, and he said, I would give my right hand if I could only believe that message. The fact is, there are millions of people around the world who would love to hear and embrace the hope of Jesus Christ. But as Paul said in Romans 10, 14, how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? That word preacher doesn't mean a paid professional like me. In the Bible, a preacher is a proclaimer, anybody who shares the hope of Jesus Christ with others. Do you know what the untold secret of Christianity is? Had the spread of Christianity depended upon paid professionals like me, pastors, apostles, evangelists, the Christian movement would have never gotten off the ground. But the explosive growth of Christianity, one writer said, was because of amateur missionaries, he called them. That is, ordinary men and women, lay people, ordinary people who were willing to share the extraordinary message of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the first person who did that in our study today. Last time in Acts 7, we looked at the first martyr of Christendom, a man named Stephen. He wasn't a pastor. He was a layman, a deacon, the first to die for his faith in Christ. Today, we're going to look at the very first, in fact, the only person in the entire Bible called an evangelist. And again, he wasn't a pastor or an apostle. He was a layman, a deacon. His name was Philip. And we find his remarkable story in Acts chapter 8. And today, since we're all called to be evangelists, we're going to look at three characteristics of an effective evangelist by looking at the life and ministry of Philip. There are really three acts to Philip's story. First of all, we see Philip in Jerusalem where he demonstrates the invaluable quality of invincibility, refusing to back down. Now, remember, in the Bible text, in the original text, there were no chapter divisions. Those were added later on. And so, in chapter 7, verse 58, we find the stoning of Stephen. And remember, the one presiding over that was a man named Saul of Tarsus. First time he's mentioned in the Bible. Now, in what we call chapter 8, verse 1, we find these words. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And notice what happened. Uh, verse 3 says, and Saul began ravaging the church. And then verse 4, the effect was, therefore those who had been scattered went out about preaching the word. Philip, yes, he was persecuted in Jerusalem. He fled to Samaria not to protect himself, not to hide, but to keep on preaching the gospel, as we'll see in just a moment. He wasn't about to be intimidated by these Jewish leaders. He had seen the courage of Peter and John, who said when they were intimidated, they said, you've got to be kidding. We're not about to stop speaking about those things that we have seen and heard, Acts 4.20. Well, Philip was that same invincible evangelist. He said, I may have to change locations, but I'm going to keep on sharing the gospel. He is a perfect picture example of invincibility. Notice the second characteristic, and that is humility. Humility. And I want you to notice two things Philip laid aside to make him an effective sharer of the gospel. 
First of all, he laid aside his personal prejudices. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. The crowds, now he's talking about Samaritans, with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, and they heard and saw signs which he was performing. You know, we read this. Well, Philip went to witness the Samaritans. Isn't that nice? And forget what an unusual thing that was. You see, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans returned the favor by hating the Jews. Philip preached to the Samaritans. He was willing to lay aside his personal prejudices that were a part of his upbringing. Not only that, Philip laid aside his desire for recognition. That's another reason he was effective in his witness. What does it take to be an effective proclaimer of God's word? First of all, it takes invincibility. It takes humility. And thirdly, it takes clarity a clarity of the message. And we see that in Philip's experience in the desert. Look at verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Luke adds, this is a desert road. Philip had heard the voice of God too often to ignore it. And so verse 27 says, he got up and he went. There he is standing on a road out in the middle of nowhere. When suddenly he sees a chariot approaching him. And in that chariot was an Ethiopian eunuch, verse 27, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. This is the story of how the gospel spread from Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, Ethiopia. And it was through the evangelist Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, we know three things about him from this brief description. First of all, he was a eunuch. That means he was voluntarily castrated to serve in the queen's uh, uh, administration and oversee the money. Secondly, he was very wealthy. How do I know that? had his own chariot. He had used his own personal funds for a personal trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. Why did he want to go to Jerusalem? Well, that's the third thing we know about him is he was a very devout person. He came to worship the God of Israel. He came to Jerusalem. In a moment, we're going to see he's reading the Old Testament on the way back home. Now, he is what we call a proselyte. He wasn't a Jew by birth, but he had converted to Judaism. So he was a follower of Judaism, not at birth, but he had converted to Judaism. He was a very devout person. Now, let me stop here and make an important point. I'm going to make again when we come to Acts chapter 10. If you ask most people today, do you think a man who worships God, reads his Bible, and goes to church is going to heaven one day? 99.9% of people will say yes. Most Christians will say yes. And yet, I want you to notice here, and when we get to Acts 10 with Cornelius, none of that was enough to save this person. This court official was devout. He loved God. He worshiped the true God. He went to worship God, and he read the Bible, and yet that wasn't enough. No one can be saved apart from a saving faith in Jesus Christ. There is not in history one person after the cross of Christ who was saved without exercising a personal faith in Jesus Christ. 
Acts 4.12, Peter said, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You cannot be saved apart from a personal knowledge of Jesus. But what I want you to see is, notice to what lengths God will go to get the knowledge of Jesus to somebody who really wants to know God. He takes Philip out of this prosperous, growing revival situation and plants him right in the path of this Ethiopian court official to share with him Jesus. So what was he doing? Look at verse 30. Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the official reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip said, do you understand what you are reading? <laughs> the court official said, well, gee, Captain Obvious, how could I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture which the official was reading was this. It came from Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does this prophet say this? Is he speaking of himself? Or is he speaking of someone else? Many people believe that Isaiah chapter 53, the passage the eunuch was reading, is the best prediction, the clearest prophecy of the Messiah in the entire Old Testament. Isaiah was written at least 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah 53 is the picture of Messiah, the suffering servant. And Luke tells us what passage he was reading. He was reading from Isaiah 53 verses, what we call verses seven to eight. Now stay with me on this. If he was reading out loud from verses seven and eight, it stands to reason he had already finished reading verses five and six. Do you remember what Isaiah 53, five and six say? Talking about Messiah, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us unto our own way. But the Lord has laid upon him, Messiah, the iniquity of us all. The clear prediction of the suffering of Messiah for the sins of the world. So after reading all of these things, the eunuch wanted to know, who is the prophet Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? And what did Philip say? Oh, everybody just interprets the Bible for himself. All that matters is what it means to you. No, he didn't say that. He gave him a clear answer. Look at verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and he, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Isn't that amazing? All he had was the Old Testament, but that's all he needed. He preached Jesus to him with the Old Testament. It reminds me of Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples who didn't recognize him after his resurrection. And the Bible says Jesus began showing him how the Old Testament prophesied of him. He preached Jesus to him. Folks, here's an important word for us when we're sharing the gospel with somebody. 
The gospel message is about Jesus' ability to forgive sins if we trust in him. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Ethiopian eunuch heard. And what was his response? Look at verse 36. And they went along the road. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? They're out in the desert. And yet they see a pool of water. And the first thing the eunuch wants to do after believing was to be baptized. And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down, underline this, into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And then they came out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. This is the most extensive passage in Scripture about baptism. I want you to notice three things real quickly. The model of baptism. The model of baptism. It's a very simple principle you find all throughout Scripture you believe, and then you're baptized. There is never one example in Scripture of somebody being baptized or sprinkled before they personally believe. It is always believe and be baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch believed, and then he was baptized. Believe and be baptized, that is always the model in Scripture. I want you to secondly notice the mode of baptism. How is a person baptized? It is always by immersion. We saw that with Jesus in Matthew 3.16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately out of the water, the Bible says. And uh, we see that here with the Ethiopian eunuch. He went down into the water and he came up out of the water. It's not just by uh, the scripture references here. We know that baptism is by immersion. It's by the meaning of the word baptism itself. Baptizo, the Greek word. Our word is just a transliteration of that Greek word, and it means to immerse. It doesn't mean anything but immerse. To say, as some people say today, gee, I'm really praying about how I should be baptized. Uh, should it be by immersion or by sprinkling? You know, that's kind of like saying, I really don't know how I should be preparing baked fish. Should I prepare it by baking it or frying it? Well, baked fish, by definition, is baked. And baptism, by definition, means to immerse. Why is that important? Because of the third thing we learn about baptism here, and that is the meaning of baptism. Baptism is a sign. It's a symbol. There's nothing in that water up there that's going to take your water away or your sins away. That water represents the grave. And when you're baptized, you're saying, I have died to my old way of living. I've been raised to a new way of living. Isn't that what uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 3? You know, Paul wrote this chapter to answer a question many Romans had and many Christians today have, and that is, can I keep on sinning after I've been saved? Can I remain on practicing homosexuality or adultery after I'm saved? Can I keep my addiction after I'm saved? Paul said that's the wrong question. The question should not be, can a Christian keep on sinning after he is saved? The question is, why would a Christian want to keep on sinning after he is saved? 
Doesn't mean you won't stumble, but your desires change. Look at what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? You know, I've got my get out of hell free card. Can I just go sin all I want to? Am I to keep on sinning? No, may it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism and death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in a newness of life. Just imagine after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Just imagine Lazarus comes out of that sepulcher. He's unwrapped. He blinks his eyes three times, can't believe the sunlight, can't believe what he's just experienced. He said, thank you, Jesus, for raising me from the dead. Thank you for giving me new life. But if it's all the same to you, I'd like to wrap myself up back in those stinky grave clothes and climb back into this tomb. It's comfortable in there. Can you imagine Lazarus or anybody who's been raised from the dead wanting to go back to the tomb? That makes no more sense than somebody today saying, I've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I've been given a whole new quality of life. But if it's all the same to you, I want to go back to my old way of living. That's why Paul says, can those who have died to sin, do they really want to still live in it? May it never be. And that's what baptism is a picture of. I've died to my old way of living. I've been buried and I have been raised to a newness of life. This passage teaches us a lot about baptism, but that is not the major focus of this passage. This passage is a reminder of how to be effective at the one purpose we all share together. Have you ever thought about this? Why didn't God just rapture you and take you to heaven the moment he saved you? Things would have been a lot easier for you and me. God could have enjoyed perfect, untainted fellowship with us, apart from any sin in us whatsoever. But God left us here for one reason. He left us here to share the gospel of Christ with as many people as possible as quickly as possible before he comes back again. And we all share that same purpose. You're the source of your paycheck is not the definition of your purpose. Don't get your paycheck and your purpose confused. It doesn't matter whether your paycheck comes from a church, seminary, mission board, or a hardware store. That's not your purpose. Your purpose is the same purpose as my purpose and our purpose, and that is to share Christ. And to be the effective witness that Christ has called us to be means we have to be invincible, not be backed up or intimidated by anyone. We have to be humble, not caring what other people think, but putting their needs above our own. And we have to be clear in the message we share. With laser-like precision, we have to be able to articulate what it means to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. There are times on Pathway to Victory that I wish our program was a full hour in length. 
And that's true today because I didn't have quite enough time to include all of my teaching in this program. But in a moment, David will explain how you can receive the complete unedited recordings for the Unstoppable Power teaching series. But first, I'm eager to remind you that time is running short to take advantage of the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. Good friends of our ministry have established a $500,000 gift for this purpose. The intention of their generosity is to inspire others like you to respond in kind. Here's how it works. Today, your gift of any amount will be matched, meaning it will have twice the impact. For example, a gift of $50 would be matched until it became $100. A $600 gift would become $1,200. A $5,000 gift would become $10,000. You get how it works. Well, this has been an especially challenging year for Pathway to Victory, so every gift you give counts. And at the end of this matching challenge on July 4th, we're praying that God will supply everything needed so that we can continue to keep you and your family rooted firmly in your faith. And it will empower us to continue introducing the lost and hurting to Jesus Christ. Now, to say thanks for your participation in the Matching Challenge, I'm prepared to send you a copy of my brand new book called Unstoppable Power. It's based on the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. My new book will help you understand how to take your next steps in becoming unstoppable. Here's David to tell you more. Thanks, Dr. Jeffers. Today, when you invest in the ministry of Pathway to Victory by giving a generous gift, We'll say thanks by sending you the brand new book by Dr. Jeffers called Unstoppable Power. Call 866-999-2965 or visit our website, ptv.org. And when your gift is $100 or more, you'll receive not only the book, but also the complete collection of audio and video discs for the Unstoppable Power teaching series. Plus, we'll also include a study guide, and it's perfect for a Sunday school class or a small group Bible study. Remember, because of the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge, your gift today will be doubled in impact by another generous donor. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or find us online at ptv.org. You could write to us. Here's the address, P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you back next time to hear Dr. Jeffers talk about the greatest conversion in history. That's coming up Thursday on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.